welcome to episode six of the HD uh, Lockdown Pod. Joining me today in the pod uh, is Mr. Lawton. Hello, Mr. Lawton. Hi, everyone. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm very good. Thank you. <laughs> um, I hope I, everybody at home is good too. Yeah, we, we have to talk very, very briefly about how crisp you sound. Um, what's, what's the story there? I decided to do some YouTubing. None of you will find me. I haven't used my real name. Don't worry about that. Lawton is going rogue on YouTube and he sounds good with his new microphone. Been up to anything else recently in, in, during the lockdown? Uh, no, I've been strengthening my hip muscles. So around a week and a half ago, I did around 12 and a half K running and I hit my hip. I've been continuously strengthening hip muscles ever since. Went for two and a half K yesterday. Seemed to do okay. Um, we'll wait and find out really what's happening there. Find out next week. That, that is what we all tune in for is Mr. Lawton's hip updates. Uh, Mr. Patterson, uh, good afternoon. Afternoon, we all right? Uh, yeah, very good, thank you. Um, what have you been uh, up to recently in the, in the lockdown? Oh, very little this week, really. Um, I've had the joy of reading all the citizenship and history answers over the last couple of days, which... Um, it really is a joy. ...experience. Um, but yeah, other than that, not much. Just hanging out. That, that, just hanging out and reading history and citizenship, eight mark answers. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mr. DeSalvo, uh, what's been catching your eye this week? Hi, um, well, I also have made um, some, well, I've done some marking of citizenship. And then the organ that you can see at the back <laughs> today, I moved it from uh, downstairs to the first floor. Yeah, it wasn't easy, but uh, other than that, um, not a lot, I'm afraid. Um, just continuing to um, try and do some exercise and eat a lot of cake. Can we all appreciate that Mr. DeSalvo has just moved a full-scale organ there with all the pipes and tubing up an entire floor of house? That is some lofty feat there. I was extremely frightened because there was only two of us, and I must admit that at some point I thought that um, I was going to crash, you know, Andrew down the stairs by dropping the organ, basically. So, yeah. This week, for me, I mean, as obviously for most of you, nothing much changes, does it really? Um, I've I've taken the first step this week, literally. Uh, obviously, many of you will know that last summer I kind of uh, spent a little while off my feet and I was struggling with my, my knee. But uh, this week, I'm trying to start running again ever so slowly um, and making use of obviously the lockdown and having the, the one hour designated exercise to try and, and uh, try and stumble um, around and trying to get a bit of couch to 5k going on. It's a long road, uh, but I'll, uh, I'll update you, I'm sure, over the next uh, few weeks to see whether I can get running again. Right, so this week, this week on episode six, we've got a lot coming up. Uh, we've got um, a return to uh, the mysterious country. Mr. Lawton will be giving us uh, three countries and, and seven clues, potentially. We've got to try and guess the ones, uh, what, what they are. Uh, a bit of history this week. Uh, Mr. Patterson will be telling us all about the mysterious, I think it's Colonel Thomas Blood, uh, and his uh, uh, attempt to potentially get hold of the crown jewels. An intriguing story, I'm sure. Um, Geography Corner returns once more with Global Inequality and Governance Part 3. If you enjoyed Part 1 and Part 2, you kind of know what's coming. Um, the 90-second challenge will uh, find its way into language liaisons this week, where Mr. Eichlestam, myself, has been asked to talk about Dr. Mrs. P. Vandertram. Yes, I'm still none the wiser. Um, language liaisons includes as well Mr. DeSalvo talking about sport in France and Spain. So those cultural differences again, uh, kind of talking about that this week. It's going to be a brief section this week, isn't it, at the moment? <laughs> no. Well, yeah. It's Not much sport happening. There's no, no sport happening anywhere. So that Mr. DeSalvo hasn't prepared a single, a single word. He just turns up and says, nothing's happening. Move along. Nothing to see here. <laughs> If only history uh, hadn't happened, but there we are. That's not the way. Um, obviously, as usual, spread the word. We continue telling people about this podcast and try and force them to listen. We do appreciate it. Um, but Mr. Lawton, it's time, I think, to send just a couple of words about the HD lockdown quiz. Yeah, thank you very much to all those people who came along to the HD lockdown quiz. We had a uh, humanities department alumni winning it last week with an older, one of the older clan, a uh, decorated historian. I believe she got an A grade at A level, if I'm uh, correct in thinking, and That's a correct. mathematics, so you can do uh, two A levels at, both at the same time. Uh, and uh, yeah, she did very well. And the quiz went down um, really successfully. 
the final round on musical theatre. The videos went without a hitch, I think, and people could hear the uh, music very clearly, which was really good. And this week, we're going to try and add some more rounds in um, like that. So tune in Sunday night, 7pm. I'll send out an email with a link and send a reminder on Sunday. Yeah, it was a real success. And Mr. DeSalvo, I just wondered if you could remind us where uh, you came in the uh, in the quiz. Um, number 14, I think. Out of around about 20, 25 or so. So the numbers are boosted this week, but Mr. DeSalvo did not find the questions to his liking, I think, overall. Considering he wrote eight of them, which I think is quite striking. Yeah, I mean, really, it's a bit embarrassing. Um, so, yeah, actually, the empty round was completely you know no goer for me i've never watched well, most of yeah so if it's any consolation mr DeSalvo, my partner who's also a history teacher um she performed pretty poorly on the history questions uh a couple of which she did have some role in writing as well so and she finished actually below you in the quiz um so uh it's it's you know it's not all bad so yes yeah, so the hd lockdown quiz sunday 7 p.m hope to see you there again uh, and i think that brings us to the end of part one Okay, welcome back to uh, part two, and it's that time again, it's Mysterious Country. I'm using random data, using various data. All random facts, don't judge me. You can guess it when it's your time. I, I, I said, ooh, Mysterious Country. No, I can't stop until you are right. I can't stop until you are right. Banger. Um, right, so let's get on with it then. Uh, welcome back to the uh, fifth week of Mysterious Country. Uh, we've got Mr. Eichelstum, who won for three weeks in a row, and then last week taking his title off him was Mr. Patterson. Um, so this week we'll see whether Mr. Eichelson can avenge this. We can see whether Patterson can do the double, or we'll see whether DeSalvo can get his maiden victory in a mysterious country. The rules are always the same. We've got seven clues coming up at the end of each clue being told. Somebody can shout out their name and have a guess at what the country is. And let's just dive straight in there. So mysterious country number one. This country is made up of 6,000 islands. This country is made up of six thousand islands ike michael Stone. i say it every week indonesia no pat Patterson. i think i've said this before as well finland <laughs> you yeah. have every week <laughs> and it's right no sorry there's the salva antarctica <laughs> what no. And uh, we're only going to go for um, countries that are recognised by the United Nations. And as Antarctica's population is zero, it is not recognised as an independent country. Um, so, uh, clue number two. Uh, this country has been invaded at least 73 times in under around 1,000 years. Ike. Japan. Pat. Patterson. Scotland. No. Does that count? No. Scotland? No. Oh, yep. yeah, but anyway, just, just in general, Scotland doesn't count. Um, <laughs> Can I clip that, please? Thank you. <laughs> it's the title of the episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, this country's uh, largest export is cars. This country's largest export is cars. Ike? Michaelston. Denmark? No. Moving on. Uh, the next clue is that the wealthiest person from this country has a wealth of 32 billion and owns a french football team 32 billion by the way not million i think i may have said million back something there 32 billion and owns a french football team like it's not qatar is it no no there's not they've got all those islands and yeah where are all those islands in the sea this country has a monarchy this country has a monarchy Oh, Pat. Thailand. No. Ike. The Netherlands. No. Next clue. This country is where the person who invented the one-man submarine comes from. (laughs) What? 
<laughs> that doesn't help at all. I'll give you, I can give you a sub a Patterson. Do you want to go first or do you want the subsection clue? You'll still get to go first. Uh, go on then, subsection clue. It was called uh, The Gay Highlander. Relevant. Um, <laughs> Sweden. No. Let's just roll back a little bit then. So we've got like, loads of invasions. We've got 6,000 islands. We've got a monarchy. We've got a one-man submarine being invented there. And it, and it exports loads of cars. And it was called the Gay Highlander, yeah? This is drawing a big fat blank. And I've just got to start guessing countries now. Final clue. This country is where the famous singer Farouk Balshara is a na- national of. Death. De Salva. Greece. No, but good guess because of the islands. I thought that would country would have gone first, actually. Yeah, yeah. F- Farouk Belshara. The name rings a bell. It's one of the most famous singers ever in history. I mean, he rings a bell, but he's not that famous. <laughs> uh, he's no Elvis Presley. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm feeling Middle East, but I just don't think about the islands. The islands doesn't. Do we have another clue? Is there one more? Um, I could say that two of the clues do relate quite closely to each other. Um, Farouk Balshara and also um, the monarchy clue um, have got a clear link. Des. Spain. No. Is this the point where Mr. Lawton wins? This is the point where Mr. Lawton has to say, that's a tie on that one. Nobody got it. It was uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, Farouk Balshaw's uh, other name is obviously um, Freddie Mercury. That's why it links to the monarchy, because he was uh, a queen. This is... Oh. <laughs> wow. I thought you would have got that one. Uh, the wealthiest Mind blowing. has $32 billion is uh, Jim Ratcliffe, and he owns a French football team. Uh, he owns a uh, border. Yeah, Nice. Nice, I think nice, it is. Nice, is it? Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But, okay. uh, maybe that was a bad one, but... Uh, but I thought you guys would have got that. The cu- the country being invaded like 73 times. I, I thought the fact that it was called the Gay Highlander as well would give it away because when Patterson said Scotland. Uh, anyway, mystery country number two. Uh, this has got the longest coastline in the world. This country has got the longest coastline in the world. Ike, Chile. Nope. Pat. Patterson. Peru. No. Ike, Russia. Not allowed two guesses. You're, you're in the same oh. round. Mr. Eccleston. Des. De Salva. Mexico. No. Uh, this country has a literacy rate of over... No. And this would have given that away. 99%. This country has got a literacy rate of over 99%. Ha. Yes. Pat. Cuba. No. Longest coastline in the world. <laughs> Wait, Russia. <laughs> Longest coastline I... in the world. Russia's got a massive coastline. But Russia doesn't have too many islands, which actually exacerbates a coastline significantly because every island has its own coastline and distance. Um, So, Desalvo. Japan. No. Uh, This country is a world leader in uranium mining. Ike, Canada. Michaelston gets the point. It is Canada. The next clue would have been Boreal Forest. It's also the second largest exporter, or sorry, has the second largest reserves of oil in the world. Its main languages are French and English, and its indigenous peoples are called the Metis, the Inuits, and the First Nation Indians. Mysterious country number three, with Michaelston winning one to zero to zero. Uh, this country has a literacy rate of 99.8%. Pat. Patterson. Cuba. Patterson's correct. I knew you'd get it after the first one that time. Uh, yep, Cuba is a country that has one of the highest literacy rates in the world. The other clues are going to be that it's a socialist country led by a communist party. It speaks Spanish. It has the peso. It's the largest island of its archipelago, which is the Chiles Islands. I can't never pronounce that correctly. Slavery was abolished there as one of the last countries in 1886. Ernest Hemingway lived there for 20 years and um, it's got a higher life expectancy than the USA. So to decide it between Mr. Eccleston and Mr. Patterson for this week, um, we always stay within the last country. So in Cuba, please guess what the average monthly wage is in Cuba. It's between zero and $100. Okay, I'm going to say between zero and $100. Okay. So Patterson goes first as the reigning champ. 
Yes, he and, does. Uh, what is it? A- annual earnings? Average monthly. Monthly. Uh, I'm going to say $37. $37. Um, I am going to say $54. And the winner this week is... Mr. Patterson, he retains his title and does a double uh, average monthly wage of $29 in Cuba. It's a socialist country, gives it away a little bit. Um, but anyway, uh, well done, Mr. Patterson, for carrying on. After the tragedy of the first round, it recovered Thank to be you. some sort of a contest. Congratulations, and we'll see how you do next week. Congratulations, well done. Thank you very much. Right, that brings us to the end of another uh, fascinating, uh, thrilling, mysterious country. Ooh, mysterious country No, I can't stop until you are right Okay, that brings us to the end of part two. We'll return in just a few seconds with part three. Welcome back to part three. Uh, Time for a little bit of history now. And I think it's a bit of a change of pace this week. Instead of focusing primarily on some of the work that you've been doing in class, particularly like years 10 GCSE stuff we've been doing with Elizabethan England, uh, we're going to switch to something really that Mr. Patterson just wants to tell us. a bit of a story, essentially, a fascinating tale from the past. Thomas Blood, Mr. Patterson, take it away. Yeah, so this is sort of like A-level adjacent, I suppose. Um, it, it, Thomas Blood is is kind of slightly involved in the Civil War as a little bit. Um, so yeah, Thomas Blood, one of the most kind of infamous characters of the 1600s, um, a kind of soldier, a con man, a murderer, and latterly a sort of celebrity. Um, so he was born in Ireland in the early 1600s, and we think it was a middle-class family. Um, He was a sort of Protestant um, middle-class Irishman. Um, He always said that his dad was a blacksmith, but we're never really sure. But we do know that his granddad was an MP for a little while. So just like now, if his granddad was an MP, he was probably pretty well off. Um, Now, when this English Civil War breaks out, Thomas Blood, He's quite a young man. He sails over to England and decides to fight for the king. King Charles is fighting against his um, parliament. Thomas Blood sails across England and joins um, the royalists, starts fighting for the king. Um, And at this time, he starts to call himself Colonel Blood. uh, But we have no records of him ever being made a colonel. He just kind of shows up and says, I am Colonel Blood. And everyone just buys it. So he's just called Colonel Blood and he gets paid a bit more money than everyone else and he kind of is in charge of men and stuff like that. But he just made up. He just said, I'm a colonel, and everyone just nodded. Um, About halfway through the war, he realises that Charles is losing. The king's losing the war. So he just swaps, just flips sides and ends up fighting for Parliament. Exact same deal. Saunters into Parliament, says, oh, I'm Colonel Blood, I'll fight for you. Gets made a colonel, gets paid a better wage, gets put in charge of some guys. Um, just a bit of a con man, really. Parliament win the war, um, and Thomas Blood, or Colonel Blood, is rewarded by um, being given sort of some small jobs. He's a justice of the peace, which is sort of like a local official in England. Um, but later on in the 1660s, Charles II, the son of the king that Thomas Blood sort of betrayed, comes back to England and takes charge again. So Thomas Blood has to run away. So he runs away back to Ireland. Now, for most people at this point, you've already betrayed the royal family. You've already lied about being a colonel. You've kind of made yourself a bit of a target. Most people would lie low, not Thomas Blood. He decides that he needs some money. So what he does is he tries to kidnap the governor of Dublin, a guy called the Lord Ormond, um, and he tries to capture Dublin Castle and sell it back to the royal family. He tries to keep an entire castle ransom alongside its governor. Now this completely fails, completely fails, and he runs away to Holland. Now again, most people would just chill in Holland. You've tried to capture a castle, you've tried to kidnap a lord, just keep your head down, keep it loose, just hang out in Amsterdam, whatever. Not Colonel Blood. Um, He sneaks back into England and just becomes a doctor. 
Um, exactly the same thing with being a colonel. He just shows up in England and says, I am a doctor, I am Dr. Blood. And he gets like loads of patients and becomes quite a successful doctor for a little while, despite knowing nothing about medicine. He's just making it up. Um, but he racks up some debts, he owes some money. So what does he do? Well, he goes back and he tries to take Dublin Castle again and tries to kidnap Lord Ormond again does the exact same thing as he did a few years before. This time he's a bit more successful. He manages to get the Lord Ormond, the sort of uh, governor of Ireland, the, the governor of Dublin, um, he manages to tie him up and put him on his horse. But Ormond somehow manages to sort of shake free, punches Thomas Blood in the face and escapes. Exact same thing. Thomas Blood is now a wanted man. He has to run away. He has to leave. But this time he runs to London and just becomes a monk. So he starts to be known as Pastor Blood. So this is his sort of fourth career. Um, he dresses as a monk, he walks around London, and in the sort of 1670s, 1671, he becomes really good friends with a guy called Talbot Edward, who is uh, kind of just a guard in the Tower of London. Thomas Blood and Talbot Edward, they, they begin to kind of meet up, they have dinner, um, Edwards thinks that Blood is just a monk, so they pray together, things like that. And eventually, Thomas Blood says, look, I've got a nephew that I think would be just right for your daughter. Why don't we arrange for them to have dinner together and we can uh, kind of marry the two families together. We're such good friends. And poor wee Talbot Edward says, yeah, great idea come round for dinner, bring the family. Um, I live in the Tower of London, so we'll all, we'll all come to the Tower and we'll just sit and have a lovely meal. Now, they're having the meal, they're sat down. Thomas Blood has brought along three or four young men who he says are all his nephews. So Edward thinks, great, my daughter can have his pick. She can pick any one of these four men. And they're sat having dinner. And Thomas Blood says, do you fancy showing us the crown jewels? Come on, it's, it's been a long night, we're good pals. Why don't you take us to the room where Charles keeps his crown jewels, where he keeps the, um, where he keeps the scepter of power, the orb, the solid gold orb, where he keeps his crown. Um, take us and show us, just, you know, come on, we're all pals here, we trust each other. Edwards takes him into the vault where he is uh, promptly battered over the head uh, knocked unconscious and somewhat unnecessarily stabbed um, and just kind of left in the ground. Meanwhile, Thomas Blood and his four accomplices, all dressed as priests, or at least Thomas Blood is dressed as a priest, um, start to steal the royal jewellery, start to steal the crown, start to steal everything. Um, so they put the orb down Thomas Blood's trousers and he tries to just walk out with it down his trousers. Um, they beat the crown so it's perfectly flat and slide it down their tops and they cut the scepter, which is like the solid gold cane, cut it in half because it's too long to just carry out. And then they just try and walk out the front door with the, the, the crown jewels of England. They just try and walk out. Amazingly, Edwards, who they stabbed and knocked unconscious, wakes up at this point and starts to run about the Tower of London shouting, murder, murder, theft, theft, treason, treason. And all the four men who've tried to steal the crown jewels are all arrested. Now, they could be hung, drawn and quartered for this. They could be executed in the most brutal way. Heads cut off, insides torn out, cut into four pieces. They have committed treason against the country. But the King of England is Charles II, and Charles II is a king unlike most others in English history or British history. Um, he's the party prince. He loves a good story. He loves a good night out. He enjoys a party. Thomas Blood knows this and he says, I am not going to talk to any of you about what I've done. The only person I will talk to is King Charles. And amazingly, he's introduced to King Charles. He's dragged into King Charles's room and King Charles says, why have you tried to steal the crown jewels? That's a hundred thousand pounds worth of jewellery that you've tried to steal. Thomas Blood responds, hardly, your majesty, it's probably about six thousand pounds worth. And the whole court is outraged, shocked. Women faint in the background, they scream, 
Charles II thinks this is the funniest thing in the world. Um, he thinks it's absolutely hilarious. When he sees that they've beaten the crown so it's perfectly flat, he almost falls off his chair laughing. Now, at the start of the story, I told you um, Thomas Blood tried to kidnap a guy, Lord Ormond, twice. Well, Ormond is actually in the room as well. And Thomas Blood starts to joke about trying to kidnap him again. Ormond is outraged. And again, Charles just thinks this is the funniest thing in the world. The whole story has just got Charles in absolute stitches. So instead of executing him, instead of um, exiling him, instead of imprisoning him, Charles II gives Thomas Blood land in Ireland worth a fortune and a pension of £500 a year, which is a huge amount of money in the 1600s. So he rewards him for trying to steal the crown jewels. Now, if anyone's worried about poor, poor wee Edward, who was knocked unconscious and stabbed, he also survives and he's also given a pension for his part in the story. And Charles just thinks the whole thing is ludicrous. Um, and that's it. For the next kind of 11 years, Thomas Blood lives as one of Charles's best mates and is, kind of becomes famous around London as being this rogue and this kind of rapscallion and tells all these insane stories about his ridiculous life. But one last little stage of um, Thomas Blood's career. He dies at the age of 62. And by the time he dies, he owes um, various dukes hundreds of tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, and he's got such a reputation for being a kind of trickster and a liar that not one but two dukes have his corpse dug up just to make sure that he's dead. Um, because they think that he's faked his own death. And even now, some people still say that the corpse in the coffin was not Thomas Blood. It was someone else, and that he faked his death. So one of the most kind of famous con men, rapscallions of the 1600s, and one of my favourites. I mean, I must admit, I knew next to nothing about this figure when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about him this week. And he truly lived a life, well, he lived three or four lives, really, didn't he? Um, literally, in terms of his identity, I suppose, in terms of trying to con people into thinking he was someone else. Do you think, I mean, it's quite, I think this is one of the interesting things about history sometimes is that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily study Thomas Blood. I mean, he, I'm guessing he doesn't make a, an appearance in, in the A-level course, for example. No, not at all. Yeah, and it's like, it's one of those things, is that balance between he may not be necessarily historically significant, but it's just a damn good story. And do you think there is anything, though, we can learn about the period, the 17th century, Charles II, from Thomas Blood? Or is it just, let's just enjoy it for what it is? It's just a um, Well, a bit of both. I think it's a really good story that shows what Charles was like. Um, you know, most kings would have had him killed, would have refused to even meet him. But for Charles, this is a good story. And that's kind of what Charles is all about. Just a good story. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he's just, uh, it's a sign of the kind of, the Stuarts are my favourite royal, the kind of favourite kings and queens. Um, and this is just a story that absolutely kind of typifies the Stuarts. It's silly, it's got a bit of murder in it. It's, it's quite funny, long-winded. Yeah, and I guess maybe people who don't know that period very well might sometimes look at the past, look at the 17th century or whatever, and just assume that, you know, yeah, you would have kings lopping off heads left, right and centre. But there is a slightly more kind of playful uh, nature to his story, even though he does some pretty grim stuff, I guess, at times. Um, there is a playful part to his character and to the king's character as well. That You know, we've got to remember that these were people too, just like us. Right, I think uh, that brings us uh, to the end of part three. We'll return in just a few moments uh, with part four. Welcome back to part four. And it's that time of the week again that we all look forward to. It's Geography Corner. Yeah, hi everybody. Welcome back to Geography Corner. And this is part three of the global inequality and governance section. And we're finally going to zoom in on the United Kingdom itself and be a little bit closer to home. And before we do that, though, I'd just like to clarify something, something that was picked up the other day in a ministerial debate about the difference between inequality and uh, poverty, because the words can get used 
um, in exchange and people can't think that they mean the same thing. Inequality does not mean poverty. Inequality is just there being a difference between poverty means that you are without something. You could have inequality in an area, let's say, like um, Bansbury, I think it is called, in uh, North London. It has experienced gentrification before where um, millionaires came in and pushed out the common man and common professionals as it was a desirable area to live. And then super gentrification occurred where even more inequality was felt when billionaires moved into the area and forced the millionaires uh, to not be able to afford to live in that area. So inequality exists on many different scales. It's not just found in terms of there being the wealthy and inverted commas and um, those who are impoverished. And remember, we're sticking with this economic theme of uh, inequality. Now, before I carry on with our little dive into the UK and looking at some of the big stats, I would like to point you in the direction of some quality literature written in the last few years that um, I think we kind of ignore a little bit because we have our hat on uh, in terms of um, oh, when I look at inequality, when I look at differences between people, we look at other continents we look away we try and divert our attention from what's actually in our back gardens and i thoroughly recommend reading a poverty safari by davin mcgarvey looking at inequality experienced in pollock which is an area of glasgow in scotland i fully recommend uh, kerry hudson's lowborn um growing up getting away and returning to britain's poorest towns it's a fabulous read indeed and um, one that hits home a little bit hard maybe for you guys who are aspiring to the education at the moment but one that's called the myth of meritocracy and it's by james uh, bloodworth they are three fantastic pieces of literature that have been written in the last uh, four or five years and um, they really do hammer home the severe inequality that we face in the UK. And when we think about the inequality in the UK, one of the most startling facts that we can ever be drawn to is the fact that in a top five country, in terms of economic wealth in the country, one in five children grow up inside um, poverty. And yet, at the same time, we have an average wage in this country of around, depending on which website you go to, £25,000 a year. Um, we also experience um, a country where we have a national health service, um, yet we see a disparity between ethnic groups and people who are found at either end of the economic scale with inside our society. And just pointing it out that if any of you guys live in a flat or in a tower block, it's actually statistically proven in the UK that if you live above the fifth floor, um, you will actually find the most impoverished areas thanks to our social housing projects in the 1960s. I mean, uh, um, the, the biggest inequality uh, that we can really find is therefore inside London, where um, the traditional townhouses are usually less than five floors big because they're quite old, they don't build that high. And in uh, the places that are taller than that, you may think those are luxurious flats, but actually it's the people who are the most unequal um, that are found up there with the wealthiest. The United Kingdom is seen as one of the most unequal places regionally in the entire industrialised world. And by that I mean the countries that we can traditionally consider to be the wealthiest countries in the world. Um, this can be highlighted by the fact that the United Kingdom um, can be split by its inequality with the North and the South. And once again, like we consider when we look at global inequality, this isn't an even split. The North, in this case, actually represents a lot more of the country than the South. And the North is the poorer part. It's the less well-off part economically and socially. And the South is considered the richer part of the country economically and socially. And when we think of the South, we're actually talking about an area when Danny Dorling, a top geographer, went and tried to map the North-South divide, actually runs through Watford. So you would consider yourself in Coventry, in Birmingham, to be very much part of the North. In that case, it seems a little bit silly. But actually the South, and this is even more like the South-East rather than just the South, and even then centred more around London, I mean, this owes a lot of the time research has found out to be to do with poor infrastructure. And by infrastructure, I mean roads, 
internet connection, train routes, the connectivity between the places which allow uh, money to flow around an economy through the ability of labour and products to actually move around a country effectively. Now when we start to think about this sort of um, money that's generated, we've seen many of the areas of the country actually have uh, frozen wages or stagnation over the last 10-20 um, years and in some areas even a reduction in the East Midlands we've seen a reduction of 19% in household income in some studies that have taken place and we find that the wealthiest in our society the top 1% pay around 25% of all income tax which sounds like it's a good thing because well they're paying most of it and they earn the most so that makes sense but at the same time, we know that there are lots of tax evasion strategies that they employ. They have really good accountants, which are to the very edge of the law, um, m making them pay as little tax as possible in the United Kingdom. And they still represent 25% of income tax. But the shocking thing is when you consider that 43% of all the adult population in the United Kingdom do not earn enough to pay income tax. So that is two out of every five adults in the population, two out of every five adults found in the population in the UK does not earn enough to even pay income tax. So the fact that the 1%, the top 1% are paying 25% of all income tax actually shows why how there is such an unequal state out there. And to hammer this home, because we talk about these numbers, we talk about money in this sense, the median income in the UK, the sort of middle income amount is in the latest studies I've done my research, it's around 25, £28,000. It's in that range, depending on which study you read. But to be considered in the top 1%, you have to be earning over £125,000. Uh, there are very few jobs in state sector roles, like in uh, being a teacher, for example, where you can earn that sort of money. Now, you may be thinking, wow, this is all money related, but what does that mean for people? I think what really hammers on the inequality that we see in the UK is the fact that if you are born in the richest areas and you are born in the poorest areas and the inequality is done economically, socially, it means that you can end up with a 19-year difference on life expectancy. So if you're born in the wealthier parts of the UK, you can have almost two decades more added to your life than if you're born into the poorest part of the UK and I think that's why inequality starts to really become very desperate in the UK and it seems to me to hit home a lot more so there is that expression that health is wealth while in this case wealth very much can equal health and the difference that you can see around the country is quite stark um, so when we do consider inequality and we do consider the systems that are in place um, and we've gone all the way over the last three weeks from the global perspective with the Washington consensus all the way down to the United Kingdom where we've looked at inequality which is very stark and apparent even in the, our country. There are clear similarities and different that we live in a very unequal society with the systems and inequality is prevalent very much for everyone on this planet. I do promise that next week we will do something a little bit more fun and lighthearted than what we've had in the last three weeks. Sorry to be so downtrodden, especially during these times. Thanks once again, Mr. Lawton, for uh, another glorious geography corner. That brings us to the end of part four. We'll be back in a few moments with part five. Welcome back to part five. This is the language liaison section. Um, but inserted into language liaison this week is the 90 second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90. How long do we need? How long do we need? 90. How long do we have? How long do we have? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. What a challenge. What a challenge. This week's 90 second challenge. Uh, well, Mr. DeSalvo, without giving too much away uh, and without explaining it back to me, uh, what did you set last week? What was my challenge? So I asked Mr. Augustum to look into the Dr. Mrs. Van der Tramp verbs and um, yeah, basically why we need to know which ones they are and um, especially when in French anyway, this is um, 
you know, we need to pay attention to those verbs for the past tense. Um, so uh, if you could count me in, um, I will be talking for 90 seconds about Dr. Mrs. P. Vandertram. Three, two, one, go. Okay, so Dr. Mrs. P. Vandertramp. I believe it's a learning strategy, uh, a mnemonic of sorts for French learners, uh, students to help remember certain verbs and which verbs to use at certain times and not to make mistakes. So it helps learners uh, to know which verbs to use. Now, essentially in terms of auxiliary verbs or helping verbs, um, in French, you can usually choose between être and avoir uh, when conjugating verbs and, and, and you know talking in the past tense, um, I believe. Dr. And Mrs. P. Vandertramp is the mnemonic that helps students remember which verbs to use um, in terms of être or avoir. Um, so the, the words in Dr. And Mrs. P. Vandertramp stands for different verbs. So D being devenir or in the past tense devenir, uh, revenir, passport, past participle, past tense revenue, and so on, all the way down to uh, patia, the last one. Now, for an example of this, if you were applying it correctly, uh, so if you wanted to say in French, he went to the park yesterday, you would, uh, it would be aller being a, one of uh, Mrs. V. P. Vandertramp uh, verbs, so you'd say il est aller au parc hier instead of avoir, which would be il a aller au parc hier, I believe. This also links up with this idea of the house of Ethra, which is another way of remembering things by going around a house. Essentially, it's crucial because it helps remember which verbs require Ethra and which require avoir. <laughs> Wow, I'm really impressed actually, Mr. Eichstam. Um, very well explained and um, lots of key words there, including past participle, auxiliary verbs. So yeah, really, really clear. Obviously for those of us who probably know a bit more about what we're talking about, but yeah, it was explained really nicely. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad that it, it made some sort of sense to you because I'll be honest, yeah. I, I didn't do the best at school when it came to languages. Languages was never my strength. It was actually um, the, the one GCSE I, I didn't get in terms of uh, a passing grade back, back at school. Um, and I always found it really, really, really tough. And going back into this, looking at kind and, and language construction's always been, a, 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 I've never been the strongest on anyway. So it's, I found it really quite, not confusing, but necessarily, but stuff that I just, I'm not familiar with talking about, things like auxiliary verbs. And also this idea yeah. of etre and avoir, like having different choices to be made. I didn't quite, I must have, I didn't quite get it. I understand that they have to remember these particular verbs, but I didn't understand why, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's just those verbs actually that um, obviously um, have to follow that rule. I mean, if you, just a quick comparison with English, you would always say, I have gone to a certain place, I have been to, you know, so you'll always use have. Um, basically, um, but in a couple of languages, including French and Italian, there are some verbs specifically that don't want that verb to have yeah. to conjugate that tense, and they just want the verb to be. So être in French in this case, um, and it does have some consequences to the past participle. But yeah, don't want to do a lecture on here, obviously on it. But yeah, well done. Well, thank you, Mr. De Salvo. So that was uh, the ninety-second challenge this week. But now I have the pleasure, the honour to pass on the torch to another one of our teachers. Now we're gonna go forward this time, um, not necessarily uh, random order, but just picking different people, giving them different stuff to do. Um, this week, I've decided to go back to Mr. Lawton and I've decided to be a little bit more generous than I maybe was last time when I threw at him 400 years um, uh, of the Crusades. This time, I'm going to ask him to delve into the life and times of Charles Lindbergh. Um, oh, I basically want Mr. Lawton to tell me what's the deal with Charles Lindbergh? Why is he, why was he probably maybe the most well-known, possibly the most famous man in America, maybe even the world uh, in the 1920s? Brilliant. Well, um, I'm going to enjoy finding out how to reroute dictation from Wikipedia. That'll be very good. <laughs> I'm sure you'll work it out by next Wednesday, uh, Mr. Lawton. Uh, so that's the 90 second challenge. How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety. Ninety. How long do we need? How long do we need? Ninety. Ninety. How long do we have? How long do we have? Ninety seconds. Ninety seconds. What a challenge! What a challenge! 
And now, uh, to complete, to finish off uh, Language Liaison this week, um, we go back to Mr. DeSalvo to talk all about sports in France and Spain. Yes, I know you were surprised by my choice, considering that out of the four, I am the you know the one that never joins the conversations about football, etc. But I'll surprise you all. Um, and yeah, so I want to talk about sports in France and in Spain, and including a couple of traditional sports and, and some sports that originate from those countries. I'm sorry if you hear noise in the background; it's the gym equipment being smashed around upstairs. Um, <laughs> Um, so, I want to ask you first of all one question, and I'm going to ask you what you might think are the top five sports in France um, in order of, sorry, in relevance to membership, not who play them, but. Okay, um, I will go. So, this is in France first. Please. Yeah, I'll go for rugby. Um, besides, it's not rugby, no, no nor tennis. Rugby, oh, rugby's not number one, but it is in the top five. It isn't actually. Oh. Okay. Association football. Um, football is number one. Yes. Okay. Um, In second position. Only cycling. Uh, no, it features um, not in the first ten. Actually, I'm afraid. According to November survey last November. Is fishing a sport? <laughs> no, I'm afraid. Tennis? Tennis is number two, yes. Number three, right, okay. Golf? And, um, golf is number eight. So I'm looking for three. Three other sports that we um, have mentioned. Sorry, in third position, yeah. Sorry. Something like badminton or something like that, maybe? Mm, nope. Uh, basketball? Basketball is number four, so. Water polo? Uh, I'm afraid not. Go on, Mr. DeSalvo, put us out of our misery. Okay, we've got horse riding at number three and judo number five. More people play judo in France than play rugby and golf. I suppose <laughs> it's about participation, though, isn't it? You can have loads of little kids doing judo and then they give it up, can't you? There you go. But um, yeah, number six has got handball, seven rugby, eight golf, nine canoe or canoe kayak, and ten is sailing. Yes. Um, but I want to talk about um, some traditional sports in France that um, we might be um, familiar with. And the first one is actually um, hiking or walking. I mean, the French take um, a massive pride in their outdoors. So actually one of the most um, common uh, practices to go out on a uh, randonnée, if you want to use a French word, but uh, yeah, it could be um, a long trail around the countryside and it can, um, well, it involves um, quite a lot of people. Um, then you got your pétanque or bowl, whatever you call it, yeah. Um, I know sometimes you can play in pubs here in the UK, I think, or at the back of a pub, um, which I think we're all aware of. And then there's a parkour or free running, uh, which also is quite a traditional uh, French sport. And I want to spare a few words about this sport because um, I found fascinating the origins. Uh, so while I was looking into this, I found out that it um, was originated, well, it originated in 1988. Um, and it's uh, attributed the kind of invention to this guy called David um, Bell, um, who was only 15 years old actually, and his dad uh, was a firefighter who was in the um, kind of natural military, you know, some kind of high rank firefighter, and he travelled across Africa with the Navy at some point, and he was fascinating, um, fascinated sorry, by the remarkable um, athletic skills of the indigenous people they would seen in Africa and how they achieved uh, being so athletic just by interacting with the surroundings rather than using any equipment other than nature. Um, so instead of uh, using, well, instead of um, kind of perceiving nature and as obstacles to kind of get over um, and eliminate, and those indigenous people were using nature and the surrounding space as a way to 
actually exercise, which then was translated into obviously the free running where you, you know, jump over things or, you know, I think we all know what free running is anyway. Um, and then I wanted to mention two more sports um, that were in invented by the French or allegedly so. So, um, <laughs> and the first one is called Jeu de Palme, literally the game of the palm. Um, it's actually the origin of all racket sports as we know them these days. And um, again, it seems that, that this was invented by some monks in uh, the 13th century. I don't know if when Mr. Blood pretended to be a monk, he was also playing Jeu de Pomp. But uh, yes, I think apparently they were a bit bored at times. And in between prayers and other chores, they invented this um, sport and it was pretty much kind of like tennis but you were playing with the palms of your hands um against each other against the wall so it was quite um a painful um game if you think that the ball well the palm of your hand would get you know the contact with the ball and then one that i would really invite everybody to have a look at on youtube is called home ball has any of you ever heard of it no it seems um so it's quite a quick game. I mean, normally it lasts only five minutes. I think it's used quite a lot in schools, especially because it means that during PE lessons, you can get quite a good amount of sort of kids to play as, you know, in, in turns. Um, and it's like a big cage made of like a net. Um, and it's uh, quite small. I would probably say it's smaller than half a tennis court, the area. And... Uh, uh, there's only five players and there's obviously a ball that you must try to get into one of the five, um, well, one of the yellow targets, um, all made of this netting, basically. And you can uh, either kick the ball or use your hands, although this is you know, normally decided in the beginning. But then there is also a red target. And if your ball goes into the red target that brings down to zero the score of your own team so as you're trying to get the ball into the yellow targets um obviously you can um kind of penalize your own uh, team um and i've not particularly heard of this one before so it's quite um fascinating one i thought um and in spain i will spare you the top charts guessing uh, this time but we do have number one football again uh, basketball is number two followed by tennis cycling and uh, golf um i think one major sport that is more appreciated in spain is motorsports with the formula one i think the spaniards are a bit more keen than um the french um and in terms of traditional Spanish sports, I'm going to start with the um, Basque Pelota um, that originated in the region of Basque, so in the north, but has been exported um, in various other countries, including South America. And it is a game, um, you know, again, a ball game, um, you know, played in a court. But the way you sort of hit the ball and you launch the ball um, is quite different because you use an arched piece of wood and almost you scoop the ball into this wooden bat and then you have to throw it either against a wall or actually play in teams. It's quite difficult to, uh, there's a particular technique to rotate this bat so that it doesn't just go anywhere and then there's various areas of the kind of court where you score different points. Um, and then to finish off, it's the bossa ball. There again, I've watched a couple of videos on YouTube. It's, um, I really want to try this one, hopefully, in the future. Um, again, another ball game, and it is between two teams. Uh, it was invented in Spain, although then it was kind of... Um, well, sort of put together by a Belgian guy, um, but he was in Spain and he combines elements of volleyball, football and gymnastics plus music at the same time. So you're playing on an inflatable court and normally outdoors, uh, possibly on the beach. Uh, and each on each court, there's also a trampoline and there's a net as well. So you can hit the ball again with your hands, with your feet, but a lot of the time the players are doing some, I don't know, somersaults or like all sorts of kind of acrobacies before they try to throw the 
the ball onto the other side and the trampoline obviously helps whoever's trying to slam the ball onto the other court you know get more of an elevation um if that makes sense but there's a, a video on youtube which explains really well and i found it quite um, appealing and really the last the very last thing this time is um that i think there's a lot of board games as well can be played especially during lockdown um as we all find different ways to entertain ourselves and the challenge that i might give our listeners is to have a look at how um, the french and the spanish call some of our most you know common board games because they're not always translated you know quite literally into french or into spanish um, so something like um guess who uh, normally is translated quite literally uh, but for example connect for um sounds similar in spanish um but not at all in french so maybe as a you know as a way to fight boredom people could try and have a look at those i really uh love parkour uh the french one that you mentioned before there's a great instagram account by a group of people who do it called story and they do incredible content have a look at their stuff if you get the chance to the game you mentioned, Mr. DeSalvo, um, with the the trampolines in Spain sounds genuinely wild. Like, I, I, yes, I guess I, 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 you've just described it to me, but I, I still can't quite fathom how it works. But it, it sounds crazy. Yeah, bossa ball, like boss a ball, if you want to break it down. Have a look on YouTube. And um, obviously, you're talking about that kind of uh, sport that you would associate with or originates from those countries. Um, I don't know if you know this, you, you may do. Um, you didn't talk about uh, bullfighting, which obviously a lot of people associate with Spain. Is that something that people would class as a sport even, or is it something that originates in Spain? I, I don't know if you know. Yes, um, I deliberately didn't want to talk about bullfighting as one of the sports. Oh. Um, no, as in, because of think a lot of people would take for granted that that you know is what the Spanish what Spanish people do and I did look into it a little bit more because there are some specific rules actually and there are three rounds apparently in the bullfight as well and there's some elements of history in a way probably or at least they kind of go back to the origins of it because the participants have to almost pretend that they're given the keys to the gates that open you know the areas where the bulls are um, kept and it's normally you know this very important person who probably used to be the king anyway uh, who would give you know all of these fighters you know the the keys um but it is losing um popularity as a sport in spain due to obviously more people becoming aware of the animal cruelty that goes behind the scenes um, yet it does attract a lot of tourists um, and it's certainly one of the most stereotypical um, images that we still have of Spain anyway. But it is a sport, it is considered a sport. Right, I think uh, that brings us to the end. Thank you very much, Mr. DeSalvo, um, of part five of Language Liaison for another week. Um, we shall return, uh, I'm sure, uh, next time around. Um, so that's the end of part five. See you in a few moments. So welcome back to part six. Um, just a quick one this week. This is responding to um, a question, well, a comment, I suppose, that came in a week or so ago from a student talking about either independent study, revision tips, essentially, and saying how they were finding, you know, as I'm sure many of you are, finding the lockdown situation and working from home, the remote learning, quite challenging. It's so different for many of us to have to work independently on our own for prolonged periods of time without that kind of level, the same kind of interaction, I suppose, with our peers or with our teachers. Um, and I was just wondering whether or not any of our, you know, uh, teachers here had any potential ideas, tips, or just general thoughts on how best to approach um, the, the sort of the solitary nature um, of, of the learning experience. Mr. Patterson? Uh, well, I would say your best bet is to stick to your timetable. Um, so don't just do the subjects that you love. So like, don't just spend all your time focusing on your two hours of history. Try and bring in the subjects that you like slightly less. So you know, do a bit of geography. Um, 
But like, really, yeah, stick to your timetables because um, I've been having a bit of a moan this week about uh, kids submitting work or you guys submitting work at like 10 to 12. Or I think Mr. Eichelson, you'd want it like two in the morning or something. Um, that will not help you in any way, shape or form. So stick to your timetable stuff. You know, if you've got double periods of geography on a Monday morning, do your two hours of geography and at the end of those two hours, move on. If you've got leftover stuff, you know, set yourself it as homework towards the end of an evening or something. Yeah, and I think, I think if you're finding yourself working at that time, it, it's, I would imagine it's probably less likely to be the best work you can produce. And also you've got to ask yourself the question as well as how have you found yourself working at that time and if you are kind of finding yourself working at that time you know you've got to think about your organization a little bit you've got to think about your time management and if you're doing that then because you think oh, i'm never going to get it all done i'm struggling to you know, keep up to date that's when you've got to start talking to your teachers let them know how you're doing and you know see if we can maybe help you out and advise you in terms of you know structuring your work across your week because um yeah uh, that is the time to be asleep i, I believe generally yeah i i wouldn't like to point out that when you're setting up to do any remote learning that when you're at school, you enter a classroom, you put your bags down, you sit down in your chair, you're going through those beginning stages in a minute or two where you're setting yourself up to work. You have to do that when you're at home in your remote learning environments, you've got to set yourself up. That time's got to be factored in. So if you're thinking that you're going to do two hours worth of work, um, it may take you five minutes to load up your laptop it may take you time to actually get to that point but you haven't actually started doing any of the work yet so as teachers we are setting work which is for the amount of time that it saves on the learning sheet and we factor that in a little bit but if you are dragging your feet and loading up the laptop that doesn't count as work towards actually completing the activities that you've been set and we've got the courses to get through at the moment during these uncertain times but we've got to um, ensure that when we come back we are in a position where it isn't all fresh to us that this period of time that we're going to miss out inside the classroom and I know that history of looked into using Seneca Learning, which is the online learning platform, that indicates to us as teachers how long has been spent on the activities. And we have some students that are completing it far quicker than others. Now, I admit that there are some people who are quicker with technology and some people who are maybe um, sharper with those sorts of activities that, that, that Seneca provides. But for some of you, the hours that I am seeing being spent on very simple, straightforward comprehension activities, things that you would have been doing at primary school, things that I know from all of your learning profiles and special educational needs, you should be able to access quite straightforwardly. Um, that if you've got music off, if you haven't got the distractions, like when you're in a classroom and you concentrate, you'll be able to get it done quicker and you'll probably get more from the activity itself. Dragging yourself through it over the course of two and a half hours three hours is probably going to have less impact than doing it in an hour you may think oh i spent longer doing it so it'll go into my brain more it won't you need the right working environment and to tie it back to what i was saying at the beginning establish yourself get into routine of putting yourself into work like you do at school with bowels like you do with the teacher saying complete your bowel work we aren't there to do that at the time you've you have got to be a little bit stricter with yourselves yeah can I add to that, sorry, and say that, um, well, first of all, I would like to continue to push our students to email us. I have had a couple of um, students emailing me about some grammar that wasn't entirely clear to them. And, you know, perhaps sometimes we feel a little bit embarrassed to send those emails. And um, um, yes, please continue to send emails um, if you're not sure about what to do. Um, and at the same time, because it is so difficult to motivate yourself, like Mr. Lawson was saying, and then yet to keep that kind of regular sort of discipline almost um, to complete everything. I think at the same time, um, give yourself some rewards almost, you know, and make sure that when you do the two hours of, I don't know, history, geography or French or Spanish, perhaps, or whatever it is, then kind of reward yourself with, you know, whether it's a cup of, I don't know, you know, milk, chocolate, whatever it is that you guys drink, um, or, you know, allow yourself to minutes on your phones or yeah, whichever reward works for you. Um, because yeah, you, you are doing a lot of work that, uh, you know, it's a bit difficult to kind of get used to doing in those, um, settings. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a, a challenging experience for 
every single person in, in all different walks of life. And, and you guys, you know, are sadly, obviously no different. And, and having to find a way of adapting uh, to those new challenges has been, has been hard. Um, but I would like to say to, fi- to sign off really is, is how well I think so many of you have been doing, you know, and, and that it's um, been producing great work, clearly showing that you've been thinking about it um, and putting in a considerable amount of effort. And this will pay off when you come back to school and you'll be able to crack on and not find yourself, you know, behind in any way, shape or form. You'll be absolutely fine because of all that hard work you've been, been putting in now. Um, right, folks, I think that brings us to uh, the end of um, episode six of uh, the HD Lockdown Pod. Um, all I've got to say now is uh, farewell, uh, adieu to uh, Mr. DeCalvo. Adieu, au revoir. Um, Mr. Patterson, see you later. See ya. And uh, Mr. Lawton, ciao for now. Ta-ra. The trampolines in Spain fall mainly on the plane.